Well, hey, Redemption Church, thank you once again for inviting us into your home so we can make much about Jesus. That is our whole goal. In fact, that's why we're doing the Gospel of Luke. It was one of those things where when I was thinking about, like, what should we do next back when we started this whole journey, I I just knew that more than anything else, what is solid and healthy for the Christian to run to is to run to looking at Jesus and how he does life and what he calls us to do and how he calls us to be like him. And so the gospel of Luke seemed to be the perfect kind of fit to just focusing on that, especially in our current climate and our current world where I think Jesus so desperately needs to be seen. And so that's the whole heart behind this thing. Now, before I get underway, just a quick reminder, we have an app, there's notes, there's an archive. If you've missed anything in Luke, it's in there as well. So that's the first thing. And also we have great kids content every single week. Uh, Miss Dana and team get together and they come up with things that just are really again designed to point your kids in the direction of Jesus. And that's what this is all about. It's all about Jesus. So today we are in the gospel of Luke chapter 12. And so you can turn there, you can tap there, you can say, hey, Google, hey, Alexa, hey, Siri, your way there. And uh, we'll start off with that here this morning. But before we do, I'm going to go ahead and pray and get our hearts ready for what it is Jesus has for us today. So if you would join me, that'd be awesome. Jesus, um, it is so clear what we're meant to do as far as we're meant to be like you. We're meant to sound like you. We're meant to care like you. We're meant to sacrifice like you. We're meant to really kind of make an impact in the world in your name, with your voice, with your heart and your hands. And just the, the spirit of the kingdom is to be true in our lives. And yet we're all too human. We are flawed and challenged. And so all the more we need you to work in us. We know that, hey, we are just the, the, the branches. You are the real connecting point. You're the trunk of everything, and we rely on you. And so I pray that as we are challenged by your word, as we are reminded of what it means to follow you, instead of growing frustrated or disheartened or just throwing our hands in the air and saying, this is too hard, instead we would rely on your spirit Instead, we would press into you more, that we would come before you with earnest, deep, sincere prayers that say, I need your strength, your power, and your might to do this in me because it is worth it because we know you reward those who are faithful to your kingdom and your calling. And so Jesus, we look to you this morning to guide us in those things and to stir and inspire our hearts to be about your business. And so we thank you, we love you, and we praise you in your good and perfect name. Amen. So uh, you are right now in chapter 12, but since chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke, which takes us way back, uh, Jesus has been setting the bar on what it means to follow him. Because at the core, what Jesus is seeking is not just people who accept him or affirm him or listen to him, but he wants people that are willing to roll up their sleeves, cinch their bootstraps, and do that hard thing of pounding the hard ground of kingdom life in his name and for his glory in such a way that it makes a huge global impact. That is his heart. And so he wants us to understand in a very full way what it means to follow him. And when we were in the Gospel of Luke now like two weeks ago, because we had Mother's Day kind of in between things, um, we were seeing something about following Jesus. Then in one sense, you look at it and it's inspiring. It's tremendously like empowering. But in another very real sense, it's a bit sobering. Because it was in that context that Jesus basically says, you know what, because you are my servants, because you are my followers, I have endowed you with tremendous privilege. 
I've given you grace. I've given you spirit. I've given you truth. I've given you access. I've given you divine nature. All these things are given to us as privileges. And from that, we are then to live responsibilities. And so we have gospel-rooted privilege that should have gospel-fruited responsibility. So root leads to fruit. And so Jesus is trying to drive us all in that direction and help us understand the nature of our calling for his kingdom. And then in this, he closed out that whole idea of kind of sobriety and kind of exhilaration here by reminding us of really what we're supposed to do with what he's given to us. In verse 48 of Luke chapter 12, He says, when someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. See, one of the things that didn't strike me as much two weeks ago as it did actually looking at it this week was that that little tidbit there, even more will be required. See, in other words, he's given us like the seed of something to start with, but we're then to capitalize on what he's given us. He does the same thing with like the the managers of the talents later in the gospel, where he's like, this one gets one, this one gets three, this one gets five, whatever the numbers might be, depending on which gospel you're looking at. And then they're supposed to invest that and make more. It's like Jesus is saying, man, I've brought you into this kingdom enterprise, and I want you to capitalize to the fullest degree possible. Now, for those who do, who live out their gospel privilege for the sake of the world to enrich the world with the spirit and essence of the kingdom, Jesus says they're sword, right? And that's what we learned. He says, you know what? One day you will be at like the kind of eternal like awards banquet. And he's going to pull out a chair for you personally. And he's going to say, here, sit in the chair because you, you made me so proud. You, you, you did what I would do. You lived like I would live. You cared like I cared. Like I was gone and it seemed no different because you were just like me to the world around you. And so he's going to put on an apron and he's going to celebrate you because you served him. That was the inspiring part. But then he said, there's also a sobering part. And the sobering part is there's some people that have salvation, but then they just sort of sit on their salvation. They don't use the privileges to serve the world. They use the privileges so they can feel good spiritually, so they can have community, so they can feel enriched when they sing or read the Bible or whatever else, but they don't engage in real kingdom work and real sacrificial living. And from that, Jesus says, you know what? When that award banquet comes up, I won't be pulling out a chair for you and I won't be serving you at that banquet. That was the sobering part. Now, here's what I want to revisit here because it's going to come into our our, kind of our context this morning. I want you to understand when Jesus said those things, I don't want you to jump to the conclusion that the difference between those two types of servants is the difference between heaven and hell, because that's our tendency sometimes is to jump to that conclusion, but keep the context in mind. He's talking about his servants, right? So these are people who follow him. Some do it very faithfully. Some do it unfaithfully or non-faithfully, but they're still his servants. They're still his kids. They're still saved. And so this isn't something that we need to go, oh, am I going to heaven or hell based on if I serve or don't serve him well? That's not the context here. The context is reward or loss. It's either being celebrated or having to sit out of that particular celebration where where Jesus says, good job, I was so proud of you. Thank you for representing me well. That's the context of the story here. Because what Jesus is trying to get across to his followers is that he is looking for people to be all in to his cause because he is all in to the cause. 
This is why way back in chapter nine, like I said, where this all starts, he's like, if anyone would follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me, right? So he's letting us know right up front, this is kind of the standard, but a standard to then understand reward and to enjoy reward, chiefly the reward of him saying, great job. I'm so proud of you, right? So, so this is what we want to keep in mind as we continue forward, because again, he's all in. And he wants us to be all in as well. It's with this then in mind, we go into this next section in verse 49, where he says this, and this is going to be a little jarring at first, but we'll clear it out. He says, I have come to set the world on fire and I wish it were already burning. Now, anytime we as Christians come across fire in the Bible, again, we automatically go, oh, it must be hell. If there's fire, there's hell, it's got to be hell. But there may be something else that Jesus is talking about here. Now, at first glance, you might think that sounds like something a Bond villain would say, right? Or like the Joker from The Dark Knight, like that was his mission statement, just to watch the world burn. But keep in mind what Jesus has been doing in this chapter. He's trying to motivate us to service. He's trying to understand, trying to help us understand what it is he seeks to accomplish in the world. His mission is the flourishing of the world. It's the blessing of the nations. It's to bring life where there has been decay. It's to bring righteousness where there's been sinfulness. That's the heart behind this whole thing. And so this idea of fire here is less about some kind of pyro tendency on the part of a frustrated God that just can't wait to burn the planet to a crisp. And it's more about the idea that Jesus is eager to set a fire that burns off the pathogen of sin and brokenness and decay in our world so that life can flourish. And so we don't want to see this fire as though he's angry, frustrated, and he can't wait to pour out wrath. That doesn't fit the context of the message we've been reading since chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, now chapter 12. It's not that. There's something else. He's trying to, again, drive home kingdom flourishing But for the kingdom to flourish, sometimes you need to burn off or remove, again, that pathogen, that decay, so that life can emerge. In fact, I am sure Peter was intently listening to Jesus here, because Peter writes about something similar in his second letter toward the end of the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3. And again, this is one of those things where sometimes some people take this more metaphorically. Some people take it very literally. I want to let you know up front, I'm seeing this more as a metaphor of something because oftentimes when we talk about what's called apocalyptic literature or verses that sound very apocalyptic, we sort of err on the side of there's an image or an illustration being connected here to communicate an overall picture. That's a little bit more where I'm going with this. So it starts in verse 9. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so that's the heart of God. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And when the heavens, this happens, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I'm going to stop there for just a second because again, I'm talking about this being kind of a illustrative metaphor. If everything's burned up and the earth is still there, it means it's not really maybe literally a true burning up of all the heavens and all creation. And then the earth is just there to be exposed but rather this fire is exposing the problems. It exposes the decay. It exposes the unholiness of things. From this, 
So since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to do or to be rather in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? So the more we're living out the kingdom stuff, the quicker the day will come. He says, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the idea of this, however we want to look at it, is ultimately the idea of it's peeling away all the darkness. It's peeling away all the decay, all of that pathogen again, whether we call that sin, whether we call that rebellion, whether we call that just turning our back on God, whatever it is, that's what Jesus wants to burn away. He wants to wipe that away so that life again can flourish. And so the imagery that Jesus is hungry for, the imagery that Peter's getting at ultimately is the purging of hate, the purging of injustice, the purging of sin, uh, the purging of rebellion so that beauty and flourishing and love can spring forth. And so that's the fire idea here. Here's one that's going to be a little bit more crazy and tougher for us to understand. This fire, we always go, oh, so it's fire for the unsaved. Well, what we're going to see here from Paul is that that fire is also for the saved. We pass through a fire as well. It has some kind of purifying or purging process. So you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's writing there and he says this. He says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that we already have, which is Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, or jewels, or on the flop of it, wood, hay, or straw. But here's the key. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's works have any value. If the works survive, the builder will receive a reward. Here's the seat at the table. I'm wearing an apron. I'm saying thank you. But if the worker, but if the work rather is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss, but the builder will be saved. But like someone already barely escaping through the wall of flames. And so again, you see Paul even saying that believers pass through this purging fire that Jesus can't wait to set in some ways because it's a purifying agent. And some will sit and be celebrated and some will miss out on sitting and being celebrated, but they're in, right? So, so I just want to kind of give us a sense of this is the fire that Jesus can't wait to set. It's not out of anger, frustration, and wrathfulness. Like he just can't wait to get this thing done, but rather he's like, no, I want to see the flourishing come that I've come to set forth and to do. And so I can't wait for that to get lit. What's amazing about this is that the road to this recovery comes from the Viva Della Rosa, It's that road that goes through Jerusalem, out the city gate, and up to Golgotha. In other words, the road to this is the cross. The cross is the kindling that sets the fire, that brings the change, that brings forth the purity in the world. In fact, we go back to Luke chapter 12. After having said, hey, there's a fire, I can't wait to set it. He says in verse 50, I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me. And I'm under heavy burden until it is accomplished. I was looking at this this week and I was like, this is such a weird mixing of metaphors, right? I mean, just think about it for a minute. Jesus says, I can't wait to light a fire. And then we go, great. How are you going to light it? And he says, through the baptism of water. I'm going to light a fire with water. Again, these are images. They're illustrations of something. 
And I think it's amazing because, you know, here's the deal. You can light water on fire. You can do that. You can either break out the hydrogen and oxygen and both of those will light up or you can throw gasoline on top of water. You can have a fire on top, but you cannot light a fire with water. Water cannot start up a fire. It's impossible. It doesn't happen. It's upside down and backwards from the way that we experience life. But I love the fact that Jesus couples these metaphors together because in some ways it kind of reveals everything he's been saying about his kingdom up to this point. His kingdom works in ways you don't expect. It's opposite and backwards of the ways of the world, right? So the greatest is the least, the first is the last, up is down for his kingdom. And so in his world, he's like, man, I can totally light a fire with water, right? I I can start it off in a way you don't expect. I'm going to bring a revolution to the world. See, most revolutionaries would use violence to get their mission accomplished. But Jesus is upside down and backwards. And so instead, he's going to suffer violence to get his mission accomplished. So in that sense, the cross is the kindling. And so he, through taking on sin and taking up a cross and spilling the water out of his side as he is dead on the cross, all of that is the catalyst for this change, right? And so that's what Jesus is getting at, right? I'm lighting the fire that's going to change the world. It's going to clean up the mess. It's going to bless the nations. It's going to rescue the human race. Like, that's what I'm doing. And I'm eager to do it. But boy, the road to that is my own suffering, my own pain, facing the wrath of God, facing the hatred of men, and my death. So this is what's in his mind. Now, what's amazing to me about this is that you would think that such a selfless sacrifice right? Because we, we can note that that's what it is, right? Where he just lays down arms, willfully gives himself away. Like you could look at that and say, well, man, that should just be admired by people. Wouldn't everybody just appreciate somebody that has enough strength and fortitude to give themselves willingly? Wouldn't you just admire that? Well, not everybody does. In fact, the reality is, is even though it's a gift for the world, the world is very divided over the gift that Jesus gives. And so no sooner does he say, I'm lighting a fire It's lit through my own cross. It's a baptism that I'll go through. It's water that makes the world lit on fire. That he says this in verse 51. He says, do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? He says, no, I've come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against, or two in favor and three against. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, here's something I want to touch on really quick, because again, I, I think it's very easy to kind of be walking through this passage and think he just wants to destroy the world. He wants to set everybody against one another. This dude is just an anarchist, right? You could read it that way if you weren't thinking about where we've come from. So here's what I want us to keep in mind. The first thing is this. Jesus isn't being contradictory. And what I mean by that is we already know from Isaiah that he is the Prince of Peace. And when he was born in Luke chapters 1 and 2, that section there, we see that the angels celebrated peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And then we read the Sermon on the Mount where he says, hey, you want to know who the real sons and daughters of God are? They're the peacemakers. And we see that Jesus came to forge peace and through the cross, he created peace. So All of his mission is about peace, peace for people and peace toward people. This is what he is about. But here's what he's getting at here. Even though his ambition, his mission in his heart is peace, not everybody wants what he's given away. Not everybody is going to welcome the gift that he offers. And what's strange about it is there's just this truth that, you know what? Not everybody 
likes grace. In fact, many people don't like grace. They don't like the idea that they don't earn something. They feel like, no, I want to be able to say, I did this. I accomplished this. So just the mere idea that Jesus offers grace, many people say, no, I don't want your grace. And so they're willing to divide over the issue of grace versus their own merits. Or they don't like grace because they want it for themselves, but they don't want it to have to extend it to others. And so maybe they don't like grace that way. And so they find the divide. Some don't like the Sermon on the Mount and the message that's there. Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, right? Like all those kinds of crazy things. Love your enemy. People don't want to love their enemy. So they go, no, I'm not going to follow this Jesus guy if I have to love my enemy. So there's a divide. The greatest commandment. Love God, love your neighbor. Sometimes you're like, I don't like my neighbor. I don't want to have to like my neighbor. And so the the message can divide and the list can go on and on and on. Jesus isn't trying to intentionally be divisive. It's just his message as it is can frustrate people. His heart is not to try to frustrate them. It just can be frustrating. And so he's just owning that. The message just has a divisive type of element to it. Not that he loves that, but just it's true. The other thing though about this that I think is so important is that even though his message divides, we as his followers are not called to be divisive, even though the message divides. And, and this one's kind of important to me because it's, it's strange. I, I, I've seen sometimes uh, within our Christian heritage or tradition, there's almost this thing that says, hey, if I'm speaking the truth, I can do it in a way that seems kind of cold or calculated or uncaring or sharp or a little judgy or pushy. Like we're all allowed to wear these badges that say like jerkiness for Jesus because I'm speaking the truth and that's all that counts. And, and sometimes here's what happens in that. We're so busy trying to make this point and kind of have this sense of, of glee almost and being pushy in the process that instead of the message being divisive, it's the messenger that is the divisive agent. And if the messenger sounds more divisive than the message, then the messenger has failed the message. See, that's going to be the key in all of this. And so, yeah, the gospel divides. The kingdom message divides. The Sermon on the Mount, it divides. But our heart is not to be divisive messengers in that. Because Jesus has already given us our marching orders, right? Go back to chapter 10. He says, I'm sending you as what? Sheep amidst wolves. He doesn't say I'm sending you as wolves to go fight other wolves. He says, no, you're supposed to be the gentle sheep ones as you go. And I intentionally put you in the context of wolves. So you have a divisive message, but don't be a divisive person. That just takes on a wolfish spirit. Or I think about when he says, as they enter a home, what did he say? When you enter the house, you say, peace be upon this house. When it comes to people that are maybe different than us, maybe they're outsiders or they're enemies, they're culturally our opposites. What did he say there? He says, there was this Samaritan. He was really, really good. And this really good Samaritan gave his time, his energy, his heart to a person that disrespected him, thought he was cultural trash, right? He says, be like that, that good Samaritan. That's the marching order. And he said, if anything, make sure you stay away from the leaven, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who are self-righteous. And here's the weird thing. You know what Pharisee literally means? separators, separatists. That's what the word Pharisee means. So Jesus knows there is a message that divides, and then he knows there is a religion that divides. And religion that divides takes joy and division. See, Jesus knows his message will divide, and he is grieved over that truth. 
He rides into Jerusalem, as we will see, and he's weeping over the city. He knows his cross will divide, his message will divide, his kingdom will divide. How he longed to gather them as a mother gathers her chicks. That's what he says. So he's not thrilled about the division. He just knows it's there. But he grieves over that. He grieves that people reject grace and reject his gift. All the more, we want to make sure, though, that we don't fall victim to saying, well, because this message divides, then we can take up the mantle of division. In fact, I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans chapter 12. Such a good message for all of us. He says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. That's so good. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. That's even bigger. He says, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with Everyone, this is why, again, I say Jesus isn't trying to say, hey, we don't care about peace. He's saying, no, we do peace, even though the message divides. He says, dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge and I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Here's our job. Don't let, yeah, don't let evil conquer you. Rather, you conquer evil by doing good. See, I just want to stress this because, again, throughout my years of pastoring, I've seen where people have taken the section of Luke and thought, this is why I'm to be a culture warrior. This is why I'm to be divisive. This is why I can say things in a snarky or cold or judgy sort of way. And I don't think that's at all what Jesus is trying to get at here. He's just saying, when I ask you to do things my way, it's going to divide, and you're going to get beat up for it sometimes. And when you do, you bless, you pray, you care, you do good. That's how you overcome these things. So the way of Jesus... It doesn't start the fight. And the way of Jesus doesn't really even end the fight, right? Like, oh, you started it, but I'm going to finish it. It doesn't work that way, right? If anything, we're to labor to see an enemy become a friend, to see a blasphemer become a believer, to see somebody who ultimately says, you know what? I don't like you. And we go, that's okay. You don't have to like me. I'm still going to love you because I'm going to overcome evil with good kindness, love. I'm going to be like Jesus who said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing right now, right? That's how he gives himself away for the world, and that's how we're to give ourselves away as well. So in other words, we're to conduct our everyday lives in light of that final day, where we can't wait to see him and for him to pull up a seat with his apron on, and he says, thank you, great job, you did it. I know how hard it was. I know everything in you wanted to retaliate, fight, divide in your own humanness, but you didn't do it. Man, thank you for making much of my kingdom. Thank you for having the faith and trust in me to do the hard thing and to live upside down and backwards. See, that's the thing he rewards. And for us as believers, because we've seen his signs, so to speak. In other words, we look at the word, we see what he did, we believe it. Because we see his words and his message and we believe it, right? Because of that, because we believe that he has lit a fire that purifies and purges the world in such a way that flourishing can come again. Man, we want to be all in on this, right? Then we we, we want to really live our lives according to what it is he challenges us to do. And that's the point that Jesus seeks to make. And so as he closes out this section, he implores his audience to embrace all of this, right? To kind of just grab a hold of what he's saying and to live it out. What he's been saying since chapter nine, right? He wants us to grab it and to live it out. 
And so he kind of ends this with two illustrations that are sort of weird sounding at first, but we're going to be able to, again, kind of piecemeal them together here really quickly. So verse 54, it says, Then Jesus turned to the crowd and he said, When you see clouds beginning to form in the west, you say, Here comes a shower. And you're right. And when the south wind blows, you say, Today will be a scorcher. And it is. You fools. You know how to interpret the weather signs of the earth and the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the present time. How can you decide for yourselves what is right? When you're on your way to court with your accuser, try to settle the matter before you get there. Otherwise, your accuser may drag you before the judge who will hand you over to the officer who will throw you into prison. And if that happens, you won't be free again until you've paid the very last penny. Here's what Jesus is trying to say to both the crowd and the critics, everybody that's there. The first thing he's saying is this, um, the evidence is before you, right? It's clearly before you. That's kind of that first illustration there. So the the weather patterns, he's like the proof that things are going to change is obvious. And what he's saying there to the crowd, again, critic or follower like is, listen, you've heard my message. You've seen my miracles. You've seen everything I'm about, right? So you've experienced the inbreaking kingdom. It's undeniable. So now you have a choice. You have the forecast. This is what's coming, whether you like it or not. The kingdom will displace all the kingdoms of the world. So you really have to think about what you're, you're doing here. That's kind of the second illustration that he uses, which is because the kingdom's coming and the evidence is in, you want to make sure you're on the right side of history when it all comes down, right? Matter of fact, in that illustration, what he's trying to say is, uh, ultimately, God is going to be your accuser and your judge, right? And then in that, uh, there's going to be an airtight case, And all the evidence about your life is not going to be tampered with. It's going to be clear evidence for everybody to see. It's just going to be there. And the evidence will be clear that you are guilty of the crime of not following God, not buying into his kingdom, not embracing his message, whatever it is. And so what Jesus is saying is before that day comes, you want to settle with your accuser. You want to settle with God. You want to take these signs and you want to embrace the fact that I am the Messiah. I am bringing the kingdom. You want to follow me and it's going to go better with you. That's the heart behind all of what he is getting at there at the end. Make sure you turn to the one who can make you right before you're proven wrong. And so Jesus has been super sober in this whole thing. And he's drawing a line in the sand of life. In that sense, it's very simple. On one side are his his ways and on the other side are our ways. On one side is seeking first the kingdom and its righteousness. And on the other side, it's seeking my liberty and my earthliness. And so Jesus is always trying to just take us to that binary place, not because he's trying to be mean, but because he wants us to thrive. He wants us to have abundant life. And he knows that abundance is found not in us doing our own thing, but abundance is really found in us doing his thing. Let's go and pray together. Jesus, you have some challenging words for all of us in these last few weeks in the gospel of Luke. Like you're just bringing it to a point. And again, I know that all of that is still bathed in your grace. And even as we were looking at this morning, that so much of this is not about, hey, be afraid of hell versus heaven, but rather it's kind of be afraid of even disappointing you because we squandered life for ourselves more than your kingdom. And even in that, it's, it's more of a motivator to say, hey, there was so much more blessing for you and doing it this way, so much more reward and joy in doing it this way. And I pray that that's how we face it. I pray that we are not motivated by just stark terror, 
but rather we're, we're motivated by the fact that that idea of you looking us in the eye and embracing us and saying, thank you, thank you, you really believed me. You really actually thought that what I said in the Sermon on the Mount would change the world. Thank you. You had true trust. I pray that that's where our hearts would long. I pray we would long for you and long to hear that from you and that would shape the rest of our lives. So we thank you, Jesus. We need you and we praise you in your name. Amen.